All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you now in the wee hours of February 27th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And as I am speaking to you, Russian troops are advancing on Kyiv. Both Kyiv and Kharkiv are under bombardment. The reports that an oil depot was hit near Kyiv and is in flames, and a pipeline struck near Kharkiv, and even very ominous, although still sketchy, reports that a radioactive waste dump was hit. So it appears that uh, Putin is now beginning to realize that this uh, isn't going to be some kind of blitzkrieg, lightning war solution, because his forces are underperforming, while the Ukrainian resistance has been overperforming. So instead, he's apparently decided to intentionally cause an environmental catastrophe, bombing toxic sites and pipelines to cause panic and send civilians fleeing. And we're now only four days into this. And again, returning to the theme of paradoxical or cynical fascist pseudo-anti-fascism, in Putin's statement of Thursday, February 24th, announcing what he's calling a special military operation, quote-unquote, he said that his aims are to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Well, pouring in thousands of troops is a funny way to demilitarize a place, but the denazify is the most cynical and sinister propaganda imaginable. Accusing the Ukrainians of Nazism as they, Putin and his war machine, essentially pull a Sudetenland. Crimea now is revealed as Putin's Sudetenland. If you recall your history, in the autumn of 1938, Hitler unilaterally annexed the Sudetenland region of Czechoslovakia on the justification that the majority of the populace there were ethnic Germans and really wanted to be a part of Germany anyway, supposedly. When he got no pushback from the world powers over this, he said, oh, great, now I can get away with taking all of Czechoslovakia, which is what he did just a few months later in the spring of 1939. Now, Putin has been on a slower timetable, but it's essentially been the same strategy. Back in 2014, he unilaterally annexed the Crimea with the justification that the majority of the populace there is ethnic Russians, and they really want to be a part of Russia anyway. And he got away with it. A few token sanctions, but no real pushback from the world powers. And now he's launched a general invasion of Ukraine. Although it's still unclear how ambitious his agenda actually is. Seizing a larger part of the country's territory, dividing it, putting a puppet in power in Kyiv, or even seizing the entire country and rebuilding the Russian Empire. Straight out of Hitler's playbook, as he accuses the Ukrainians of Nazism and says that he's going to denazify Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukraine's Jews, who have been booging in public just fine, are preparing to flee the country if Ukraine is occupied. New York Times headline from February 21st, For Ukraine's Jews, the threat of war steers memories of past horrors. In Odessa, Jewish leaders are preparing for the worst and making plans to evacuate 
if Russia invades the country. A headline from Israel's Haaretz from February 24th, the same day Putin launched the invasion. Moldovan Jewish community mobilizes to help evacuate Ukrainian Jews. The chief rabbi of Moldova, which borders Ukraine, says extensive preparations were made in recent weeks with the aim of absorbing thousands of Jews fleeing the war zones. And a statement just posted on social media today by the chief rabbi of Ukraine, Yaakov Bleich, quote, The Jewish community is an integral part of Ukraine and stands with the Ukrainian people, government, and armed forces in defending Ukraine. The government of Ukraine has stood by the Jewish community since Ukraine became independent in 1991. It has defended and befriended the Jewish community. I don't need to remind you that the president and former prime minister of Ukraine are Jewish. And that's a reference to the sitting president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and the prime minister under the um, preceding administration, Vladimir Groisman. I will point out that Zelensky's grandfather and his three brothers, that is to say Zelensky's great uncles, all fought in the Red Army against the Nazi invaders. And his grandfather was the only one of the four who survived. The other three brothers were presumably killed fighting the Nazis or fell into their hands and were executed for being Jews. And this is the leadership of the state that Putin is accusing of being a Nazi state. And while Ukraine has twice seen free elections and peaceful transfers of power since the uh, pro-democratic Maidan revolution of 2014, in Russia, during the same period, there has been a consolidation of increasingly autocratic power in the hands of one man, Vladimir Putin, who has ruled continuously, either as president or prime minister, since 1999. So between Ukraine and Russia, which is the country which has been at least going in a more democratic direction over the past several years? And which is the one which has been going in a more fascistic direction? That's a no-brainer. Now, you know, Putin and his uh, propaganda mouthpieces, you know, they wave the bloody shirt of the Azov Battalion, which is this Ukrainian paramilitary force, which really is kind of Nazi nostalgist and uses Nazi insignias on their uniforms and so on. And uh, we're not supposed to notice that on Putin's side, he's got the Wagner Group and the Cossacks and the Night Wolves, and these equally ugly far-right paramilitary organizations. And Putin has the support of the radical right clear across Europe and America, and has been sinking money into the campaigns of far-right xenophobes and neo-fascists across Europe. Marine Le Pen in France, the Golden Dawn in Greece, Attack in Bulgaria, Jobbik in Hungary, etc., etc., now, yes, certainly there is an ugly right-wing ultranationalist streak in Ukrainian political culture, but it's in Russia that the ugly right-wing ultranationalists are actually in power while they call Ukraine a Nazi state. The cynicism of it is staggering, and it's such a transparent lie if you just look into it at all. But, of course, because of the, you know, 
siloing effect of social media, which is how we get our news today, the people who are getting this propaganda, you know, they're just having a um, a totalizing saturation effect that, you know, excludes any countervailing arguments. Then there's the undisguised nuclear saber rattling, also in his speech launching the special military operation, quote unquote, Putin said, quote, anyone who tries to get in our way, let alone tries to threaten us and our people, should know that Russia's answer will be immediate, and it will lead to consequences of the sort that you have not faced ever in your history, end quote. And he's also making clear threats to neutral countries elsewhere in Europe. That same speech warned of military and political consequences, end quote, if Finland or Sweden try to join NATO. And I really hate to say it, I cannot tell you how much I hate to say it, but Putin's line has essentially become the consensus position of the American left. The latest statement from Code Pink a group that, you know, I also thought was great back when they were first formed 20 years ago to oppose Bush's invasion of Iraq. But man, have they ever lost the plot. Their latest statement, well, for starters, the, the, the very title is problematic. No war in Ukraine, quote unquote, as if war in Ukraine were not already a fact, thanks to Vladimir Putin. But worse yet, spinning the whole thing like it's NATO's fault and making no demands on Putin whatsoever. The statement says that the current situation shows the dangers of NATO and does not even mention Putin's name. This was all to promote a uh, <clears throat> emergency international online rally featuring Medea Benjamin and uh, Jeremy Corbyn, which was apparently held today. February 26th, under the slogan, say no to war, no to NATO. Now, I don't have a problem with no to NATO as a demand per se, but in a statement that doesn't even mention Putin, while he is the one who is raining death down on Kiev and Kharkiv, no to Putin first and foremost at this moment. I mean, it would be as if, you know, 20 years ago when Code Pink was just coming together to oppose the uh, Bush's invasion of Iraq, someone had advanced the, uh, the slogan, Note to Saddam Hussein. Now, I don't have a problem with Note to Saddam Hussein per se, but it was the wrong demand for that moment. The correct demand for that moment was no to Bush. And the correct demand for this moment is no to Putin. A couple of weeks ago, the now very, very, very ironically named Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, or FAIR, put out another Putin-line statement, or analysis, if we may so flatter it, entitled, What You Should Really Know About Ukraine, with really, of course, in italics, again repeating the Kremlin-line calumny that the Maidan Revolution of 2014 was a Nazi coup, an utter reversal of reality. Quote, the U.S. helped overthrow Ukraine's elected president. Washington used Nazis to help overthrow the government. I mean, it just sickens me that all of these, you know, essentially well-meaning but completely naive lefties are reading this propaganda and getting a completely distorted view of Ukraine's recent history 
and coming to sympathize with the aggressor and war criminal in this situation, Vladimir Putin. Okay, so um, let's go over Ukraine's recent history since it became independent with the fall of the Soviet Union and deconstruct, you know, some of the uh, utterly distorted portrayals that we're getting from Putin and his echo chamber in the West. Now, in 1990, when the parliament of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic issued its Declaration of State Sovereignty, the first move towards independence, which became formal the next year, 1991, it stated that Ukraine would become, quote, a permanently neutral state that does not participate in military blocs, end quote, and that it would remain in permanence nuclear-free in terms of nuclear weapons. Exactly the kind of position that the more progressive and enlightened dissident factions in the former East Bloc had been calling for, a neutral and demilitarized Eastern Europe. And then there was the whole question of the approximately 3,000 nuclear weapons that were actually on Ukraine's territory, including both tactical and strategic forces. Okay, now, uh, in the podcast that I did on Hiroshima Day last year, I noted that there was only one country in history that ever actually willingly gave up its nuclear weapons, South Africa, under Nelson Mandela. I did not include three former Soviet states, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, because there it was a somewhat different situation. They were really Soviet nuclear weapons that were left on their territory, and probably command and control of those weapons was with the military brass in Moscow. Nonetheless, it could have turned into a showdown for control of those weapons, and those three countries ceded them back to Russia. Now, for Belarus, that wasn't that big a deal, because even in the immediate post-Soviet situation, Belarus and Russia were still pretty close to one another. It was a much bigger deal for Kazakhstan, and a much bigger deal still for Ukraine, which has historically sought independence from the Russian Empire, whether that of the Tsars or the Soviets. And in exchange for ceding its nuclear weapons back to Russia, the nuclear weapons left on its soil back to Russia, Ukraine in 1994 was made a pledge by the world powers in the so-called Budapest Memorandum that its sovereignty, territory, and neutrality would be respected. And Ukraine at that time, upon ceding those nuclear weapons back to Russia, also joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Pact pledging not to pursue nuclear weapons, whereas Russia uh, inherited the status that the Soviet Union had held under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, allowing it to have nuclear weapons with the proviso that it's supposed to, like the other four official nuclear powers, as it were, pursue disarmament. Of course, none of them actually have, to any realistic degree. So, just like Nelson Mandela, never received the kudos that he was due at precisely that same period, by the way, 1994, the year he was elected, for dismantling South Africa's nuclear weapons and dissolving its nuclear program. 
the Ukrainian leadership of the day has never received the credit that it was due for ceding the nuclear weapons left on its soil by the Soviet collapse back to Russia without a struggle and pledging not to pursue nuclear weapons. And I should say that, uh, you know, these arrangements and Ukrainian independence generally had widespread support throughout the country. The 1991 referendum on independence was approved overwhelmingly and in every region of the country, including the Donbass and Crimea. In Crimea, the yes vote had its most narrow margin, but it still passed by around 60%, as opposed to between 80 and 95% elsewhere in the country. And really, all of this began to unravel, starting in 2004, when um, Viktor Yanukovych emerges on the scene. Corrupt oligarch, and uh, very much Putin's man in Kiev, who was consciously stirring up Russian ethno-nationalist sentiment and grievances in the east of the country. And in the elections of 2004, he was... uh, declared the winner for the presidency, which was rejected by uh, supporters of his opponent, Viktor Yushchenko, who charged fraud and staged mass protests, which came to be known as the Orange Revolution. And after um, weeks of demonstrations in December of 2004, the Supreme Court ruled the election invalid and ordered a, um, a new runoff, which Yushchenko won which was, of course, challenged by Yanukovych and his supporters. So this is when the polarization began. Okay, then uh, Viktor Yanukovych makes his political comeback in 2010 and is, in fact, elected to the presidency and immediately begins to further inflame things. One of the first things he did to escalate the situation is that he revoked amendments to the Constitution, which had been passed... uh, amid the political contestation of 2004, that limited presidential powers. He got these overturned basically through his control of um, the judiciary and has had his allies on the Constitutional Court declare the amendments unconstitutional, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because amendments are part of the Constitution, so I don't see how amendments can be unconstitutional. That just strikes me as a uh, contradiction in terms. In any event, he got away with it. And then... uh, He rejected moves which had been in the works for a treaty establishing preliminary ties with the European Union in favor of one which called for closer integration with Russia. And this is what resulted in the so-called Maidan Revolution, named after Kiev's central square, which was occupied by protesters during the bitter winter of 2013-14 to demand the ouster of President Yanukovych. Now, you know, it's very interesting and kind of ironic, because just at this time, there were protests which were going on in um, Greece and Italy and Spain against the European Union, which they saw accurately as imposing austerity on their countries, whereas the Ukrainian protesters were seeking closer ties to the European Union. For the Maidan protesters, the EU represented guarantees for human rights, and transparency in a country which had been dominated by corrupt oligarchs like Yanukovych. 
And, you know, this is a perfect example of uh, how the global state system is a divide and conquer scam. You would think that the protesters in Greece and Spain and Italy and Ukraine would all be natural allies, all opposing rule by oligarchs of one nature or another, <laughs> whether it's, you know, the, the crude, overtly corrupt oligarchs of, uh, you know, the Yanukovych variety in Ukraine or the um, plutocrats of the Deutsche Bank, as it were. But instead, they were sort of pitted against each other. And on the night of um, November 30th, 2013, the protesters in Maidan Square were brutally set upon by the riot police. And that's when uh, the movement really started to take off. The attempt at putting the movement down through repression backfired. And more and more people started joining the protest encampment in Maidan Square, which was explicitly drawing inspiration from Occupy Wall Street, by the way. Subsequent to this, Yanukovych and his allies in the parliament pushed through the so-called dictatorship laws that banned public encampments, which of course also backfired and only hardened the will of the protesters in Maidan Square, who finally met with victory in February of 2014 when Yanukovych was removed by a vote of parliament. Completely legal means. This was not a coup. Everybody just, you know, mouths this propaganda that it was a coup or sometimes even a Nazi coup when it was a vote of parliament and a parliamentary system that had the constitutional power to remove the president. Now, by then, some 200 people had been killed in repression and some on the side of the protesters had started to arm. And, you know, here's where we get the one little grain of truth which is seized upon by Putin's propagandists to completely blow out of proportion and arrive at their fiction of a Nazi coup, which is that there were these uh, radical right elements who began to glom on to the Maidan movement, particularly the group Right Sector, who were there for the, um, you know, Ukrainian nationalist and anti-Russian content of the movement and did not share in the pro-democratic element, which was really central to the movement's politics. So yeah, it's true. There were these uh, ugly radical right elements who were on board in the Maidan revolution, but they were on the right flank of the movement, just like there were socialists and anarchists who were on the left flank of the movement. And the mainstream politics of the movement was pro-democratic and inimical to the aims of right sector, contrary to the portrayal which is proffered by Putin and eagerly lapped up by his mouthpieces in the West, like fairness and accuracy in reporting, quote-unquote. So uh, new elections were um, held that May 2014, bringing the more Euro-friendly Petro Poroshenko to power as president, and his Jewish prime minister, Vladimir Groisman, the so-called dictatorship laws were overturned, repealed by parliament, and the 2004 amendments to the constitution limiting presidential powers were reinstated by parliament. But this victory was immediately met with a Russian backlash. In March of 2014, 
Russia unilaterally and illegally annexed the Crimean Peninsula and began sponsoring separatist enclaves in the Donbass. And it's been war in Ukraine ever since. And it was in response to this. This illegal aggression and encroachment on Ukraine's national territory in violation of the principles of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum and with the utter connivance of the world community, of the great powers, which which responded with merely token sanctions, that in February 2019, just two months before Zelensky won the presidency, Ukraine's parliament enshrined in the country's constitution the aspiration to join NATO. So that is how we went from the vision of a neutral and demilitarized Ukraine in 1991 to Ukraine's aspiration actually being codified in the constitution in 2019. Under that constitutional reform, the presidency is constitutionally mandated to serve as, quote, guarantors of the country's strategic course to acquire membership in the EU and NATO, end quote. So any attempt by Zelensky to veer from that policy would be or would have been unconstitutional. And it wasn't pressure from NATO and the West that manipulated Ukraine into this position. It was pressure from Vladimir Putin. Now, you may argue that this pressure from Vladimir Putin was exploited by NATO, which had designs to further encroach upon the former Soviet Union and encircle Russia. Yeah, you can make an argument. But if you're leaving out Putin's aggression and encroachment on the sovereign territory of Ukraine, you're missing the more central and fundamental point. And now it has come to Putin launching a massive military invasion of Ukraine with evident aspirations to rebuild the Russian Empire. I always try to close on a note of hope, as grim as the situation may be, and boy, is it grim tonight. But the one really encouraging thing which is happening is the anti-war protests that are breaking out across Russia. An account from my website, countervortex.org, from yesterday, February 26th, anti-war protests sweep across Russia. Thousands of people have taken to the streets of cities across Russia in open protest of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, from Kaliningrad in the west to Vladivostok in the east. What began as solo pickets, quote-unquote, essentially the only legal form of protest in Russia, quickly snowballed into mass, unpermitted marches and rallies. The largest demonstrations were reported from Moscow and St. Petersburg, where they were met with riot police in full body armor. In Moscow, Red Square was closed off by military vehicles, preventing protesters from marching on the seat of government power. According to the uh, independent human rights group OVD Info, at least 1,800 protesters have been arrested by the security forces in some 60 cities across Russia. Popular slogans include No to War and Hands Off Ukraine. And many demonstrators were heard to shout, Arrest Putin, not me, 
as they were dragged away by the police. And I'll just point out that um, this monitoring group, OVD Info, deserves tremendous credit for their courage. And I hope that they are going to uh, be able to continue to function because there's been a tremendous crackdown on human rights groups and independent organizations of civil society in general in Russia over the past year. And the country's most prominent human rights group, Memorial, which dates all the way back to the immediate post-Soviet era, was just ordered by the courts to disband. Yeah, which is the fascist regime here? And I'm going to read another report that I wrote up from a couple of days earlier. Also very encouraging. And people who really need all support and encouragement for their courage in the in the face of this situation. Russian anarchists call for anti-war resistance. One in Russia, by the way, and the other in Belarus, where protest and dissent requires even more courage. Just a little preface. The uh, neighboring, uh, you know, Russia's neighboring ex-Soviet state of Belarus, immediately to the west, Moscow's ally, which has been serving as a staging ground for Russia's thrust into Ukraine from the north, is under an even more closed regime. Belarus has been led by a single man, Alexander Lukashenko, since 1994, and he has now established himself as an outright dictator. After blatantly stolen elections in August 2020, Belarus exploded into mass protests. These were put down with such brutality that members of Lukashenko's security forces are facing charges of crimes against humanity by German prosecutors. So to read from my account on countervortex.org, Russian anarchist call for anti-war resistance, February 22nd. As Putin finally ordered his forces across the Ukrainian border into the breakaway Donbass region, the Russian anarchist group Autonomous Action issued a statement to the world entitled Against Annexations and Imperial Aggression. It reads, quote, We urge you to counter the Kremlin's aggression by any means you see fit against the seizure of territories under any pretext, against sending the Russian army into the Donbass, against militarization, and ultimately against the war. Take to the streets, spread the word, do not be silent, take action. Even a small screw can jam the gears of a death machine. End quote. Thank you very much, Autonomous Action. And I certainly hope that your followers are not being met with repression at this moment. I should also point out that this statement was issued on the 22nd, when Putin had just sent troops into the Donbass and before he launched his general invasion, the war, so to speak, of Ukraine two days later. Okay, then the Belarusian anarchist group Promen similarly issued a statement specifically addressed to troops in the country's armed forces entitled, Soldier, the enemy is in Minsk, not Kiev. Minsk being the capital of Belarus. It reads, quote, Putin, with his imperialist ambitions, threatens to invade Ukraine. Lukashenko is ready to support his Kremlin master by sending Belarusian soldiers to war in another country. 
Soldiers will have to die for the Russian czar. But every soldier has a choice. Dictator Lukashenko and Emperor Putin are the true enemies of the peoples of Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. Soldiers, in your hand is a weapon that can free you and your comrades from useless bloodshed and war. Revolt against the officers and the greedy politicians. If anyone should perish in all this conflict, it is the Belarusian dictatorship and the Russian Empire. End quote. Certainly, extremely courageous words. And I should note that uh, thus far, I have not heard that Belarusian troops have actually entered Ukraine, but many of the uh, the Russian forces that are now advancing on Kiev from the north actually entered the country through Belarusian territory. So Belarus definitely served as a staging ground for this invasion. And there were big joint military maneuvers right on the Ukrainian border in Belarusian territory, joint Russian-Belarusian military maneuvers immediately before, like days before the invasion was launched. So the anti-war protesters in Russia have got their eye on the ball and are to be applauded for their courage. Whereas the anti-war protesters here in my own country and in my own city, the United States and New York, are extremely deluded and ignorant and betraying the most repugnant moral and intellectual cowardice. Any genuine anti-war position has got to begin first and foremost with demands on the aggressor. And in this case, that means Vladimir Putin. And I am going to close once again with the words of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin in his 1916 essay, The Socialist Revolution and the Right of Nations to Self-Determination. Quote, Russian socialists who fail to demand freedom of secession for Finland, Poland, the Ukraine, etc., etc., are behaving like chauvinists, like lackeys of the blood and mud stained imperialist monarchies and the imperialist bourgeoisie. End quote. So, all of you who are at best equivocating now, as Ukraine struggles for its very survival as an independent state. Vladimir Lenin was talking about people just like you, you chauvinist and lackeys of the imperialist bourgeoisie. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.